I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are speaking with Nickel Lamoureux, the CHRO at IBM. Nickel leads IBM's people strategy, skills, employee experience, and global HR teams, supporting more than 350,000 employees across 170 countries. Nickel, welcome to the show. Great to be here today. So let's begin with your background. Tell us about your career journey at IBM and any defining moments that have shaped your career so far. Sure. So I'm maybe a little unusual in this day and age, but I've spent 20 years in one place. And that is, I've been with IBM after doing uh, internships and co-ops at IBM. I decided to join full-time. I've well, I've been in one place, I know many that are listening to this may be laughing because I've also had the opportunity to be all over the place. I, in my 20 years, I've had about 10 to 12 different jobs. I've gotten to work across uh, several different uh, countries. And if I think about defining moments, I two stand out for me, although like most of us, they maybe don't seem like defining moments in the moment. It's only looking back that you realize what an impact that they've had. The first is that I got to work on a project around data and AI when it was still in the early stages at IBM. So back in 2010, I had the pleasure of partnering with our research division and the mathematicians and scientists there to come up with predictive models, early predictive models of retention in our employees. And these are similar models, although they've gotten better with neural networks over the years, but they're the same models we use today to help get early warning signs about potential employee attrition and actions we can take. So that was one defining moment. A second defining moment was around just getting to work internationally. So two times in my career, I've had the opportunity to live and work in Shanghai, China, be based there. And I will tell you that even sitting in my seat now as CHRO, remembering what it's like to work in kind of different countries and organizations that are far away from headquarters, really continue to shape how I lead and the policies and practices that we set. That's great. You know, my first internship at a college was also at IBM in <gasps> Fallsburg, Virginia. Oh, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. So, you know, I, those, those were fun. I, I remember the times very fondly. So, you know, great culture, great company. So um, I recently uh, saw an interview uh, of yours uh, with Forbes where you talk about future work in terms of not only redefining where we work, but also at what time we work. And I, I thought that was a very interesting perspective. I would love to kind of hear about, uh, you, you know, your definition of future work and how you are seeing it, what kind of strategy you're thinking about for the larger company. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So 
look, you, you probably know, I mean, you can't go anywhere now and not hear the word hybrid, future of work. It is something that it doesn't matter if you're in academia or the private or the public sector, it is something that everybody is revisiting. And so as we think about the future of work, one of the things that has struck me is that most of the conversation has centered around where people work. And a lot of discussion about optimal and flexibility and should you be completely remote just like we have been? Should you be back to the office? And I think those are extremely important conversations to have in organizations and they need to have ones that fit their culture and their business model. But the conversation that I'm quite surprised that no one is having is about when people work. And that is the thing that as we get into a post-pandemic world, whatever that may mean, and I, I have some views that I'm not sure will always, will ever be kind of post-pandemic, but as we get into a post-pandemic world from a work perspective and the worst of it is over, I do think we need to rethink when we work. If there's anything that we have found during the pandemic, it is that employees, workers in general, are extremely resilient and they can be flexible. But we also need to give them space to balance what is personally optimal for them. It makes them most productive, but also that they can balance their life outside of work. The nine to five concept has you know, developed in the industrial revolution. And it may not be practical for our completely digital age right now. I also think that it adds to DNI in the workplace. As we see, you know, largely women, disproportionately women dropping out of the workforce or feeling stress and burnout because they're trying to manage things that happen during the day, whether it's school pickup or extracurricular activities or daycare or just child services, I think it is important for us to think about what are optimal times that teams come together to collaborate and how they can also then be doing things asynchronously to really manage a diversity of needs. Now that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think that we, we are already heading in that direction. So uh, it wouldn't be surprising as companies start embracing that philosophy so you mentioned uh, the the idea around uh, uh, the uh, diversity inclusion, and and recently IBM's released a global study that found that gender equality is not a top priority for seventy percent of organizations. It doesn't even show up in their top ten priority list. So can you talk about this report and what is the significance of the findings? that uh, are, are mentioned in that report. Yeah, um, you know, and, and look, I, I do think that this was quite a wake up call, you know, for all that's being published and talked about and discussions and rhetoric around DE&I to find that, you know, 70% of organizations don't view it that way was pretty alarming. This was a study that was done between November, 2020 and January, 2021, and it, you know, surveyed over 2,000, almost 3,000 executives, middle managers, professional women, both men and women. And it was, you know, 10 industries, nine regions. So it was a pretty 
expansive view. But those results were pretty systemic and pretty consistent across all of those groups. And I think what it tells us is that while there are a lot of initiatives and while there's a lot of discussion, there hasn't been a lot of progress. And it's simply because of this point of more and more businesses need to think of it not as a separate nice to have, but actually as core to, to who they are as a company, how they serve their clients and, and how they develop products. You know, very simply, all boards and management teams need to realize they need DNI to be successful. That diverse teams make better products, diverse teams better serve clients, period. Um, and so they need to think about it, just like companies worry about having a great supply chain because it's core to their business model. They need to be thinking about DEI the same way. And, and, and Nickel, the study was, as you mentioned, was done across 10 industries and nine geographies. Did you find that the findings are different for specific industries or geographies? You know, I think that was one of the things that was pretty interesting uh, about this study. While there are always some level of local nuance, uh, the overarching themes, particularly around kind of the business importance and being in the top 10 was pretty consistent no matter where in the world you were. Mm -hmm. So coming coming to the IBM context, um, the, the what, what kind of, um, you know, programs are you implementing and what kind of challenges are you facing um, as, as you are uh, on, on this path to better diversity, inclusion, equity, yeah, you know, our approach to this really kind of has four key uh, tenets, and some of them are going to resonate with some of your uh, listeners, and, and some we have, you know, some of our own unique perspectives on. But we think about this in four ways, accountability, experience, allyship, and advocacy. So accountability uh, is really around ensuring that we are very clear and transparent about where we stand on representation and that our senior leaders are held accountable for improving it at all levels of the organization. And we recently published a, an external diversity and inclusion report where we are very transparent with our numbers across several constituencies. It is also tied to our executive compensation. So that's, you know, the accountability piece, the employee experience. So we all know representation goes so far, but you can't maintain or even improve that representation if you aren't creating an experience that encourages people to continue to want to work in your organization. So we have over 300 chapters of business resource groups, and we have more than 50,000 IBMers around the world actively participating to ensure that there's the right support and programs locally. On the allyship front, and this is what I think so many of the organizations over the last year have really realized as they're grappling with social injustice uh, around the world, allyship 
is extremely important, not to only creating the right employee experience, but also for the accountability and increasing representation. We are actually training our employees on how to be an ally. They can earn a badge. We call it the Be Equal Ally Badge. And this is really improving engagement, but also causing every IBMer to understand their role in being an upstander when situations arise that don't live up to the culture we want to be. And then finally, on the advocacy point, we do believe that as a corporation, we are in a unique position to shape policy, not just for IBMers, but to have more systemic change in the communities in which we operate. So we are very active with our government relations teams, advocating for DEI policies across companies. Uh, Cross countries. You know, recently we helped support and implement the anti hate crime bill in, in Georgia, uh, which was not yet on the books. Uh, that's great. And, and the so there, there is this a top down uh, initiative, but then there is also this uh, initiative to create a culture. And, and in, in the report, right, you, you also talk about importance of having the right mindset and behaviors. So, so how do those kind of figure into this uh, mix? So I think it's really important. I think, you know, as a company, we need to be very clear and transparent about what our culture is and what we expect of leaders. And, and you know, candidly, that will cause people to opt in and opt out. Two, I do think you need to provide opportunities for training. We all can get better in this space. We can all better represent uh, allies across different constituencies. You know, three, I think the other thing that you need to do is you do need to realize from a mindset perspective, you're never done. <laughs> you can't declare victory and then just sit back and think that, that you know, it, it's over. This is particularly whether it comes to culture, but specifically the diversity and equity and inclusion initiatives. It's something you have to reprove and re-earn every day with your employees. So I do think those are some elements that are really important to us as we continue on this journey. This episode is brought to you by Experfy. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Experfy provides custom future of work solutions, such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. Experfy differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. However, Experfy Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the Expify platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.expify.com for more information. Mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes, uh companies are driven uh, toward certain initiatives, uh, whether it's diversity, equity, inclusion, or something else uh, based on, you know, what, what is going to be the good, good, what's going to be good for the company. So what do you tell to those companies, uh, how, you know, how do you convince them with data 
uh, or other arguments that this is a good thing to do, right? Because the, this this has kind of been uh, is taking a backseat because of the pandemic. People have got other um, bigger issues they're dealing with, uh, so this kind of gets marginalized as an issue. So how how do we bring it to the fore uh, and uh, and talk about it in a way that uh, is persuasive? Yeah, look, I think this is a is a really good point, and I think that you have to come from the premise that all companies need to understand you have better products, offerings, and services. You better serve your clients with more diverse teams. And you have to start from that premise. And there's lots of data out there, various studies that kind of prove and, and reinforce this point. And I would argue that while many people talk about DE&I taking a back burner during the pandemic, it's never been more important <laughs> In a, in a global economy, and while we're all kind of seeing different effects of that, it's more important for companies to have better products, better services, business models that, that are more competitive. The second thing that's happening, and I think this is a sea change that we're seeing certainly here in the United States, but around the world, talent has choices. And when talent has choices, they're going to make decisions. You know, we've lived through generations where talent makes choices based on just purely compensation or maybe career paths or maybe retirement benefits. One of the trends that we're seeing now is that talent is making choices about value propositions and company propositions that line up to their own societal values. And this is becoming more important. So we often talk about the war for talent. I feel like we've been talking about the war for talent for three decades. But as we're in this pandemic, as people are having more mobility, as you can kind of work from anywhere, it's really important for companies to have compelling value propositions. And no company can afford to shut down entire pools of talent. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why we've started uh, an initiative that, you know, we, we simply refer to as skills over degrees. In the United States, two thirds of U.S. adults don't have a bachelor's degree. So as companies require bachelor's degrees for their, they are shutting off entire labor pools. But when you really get underneath in a very fluid digital economy, it is possible for people to have skills. Some of them, like myself, may have earned those skills in a four-year college degree. Others may have learned those skills in the military. Others may have learned them in boot camps or online courses or through community college, but may not have a degree. I think as businesses move forward and they think about needing to open the aperture to talent that is available in all places. This is an example of where we can all do better. And right now, 50% of jobs at IBM don't require a bachelor's degree. Shifting gears, uh, we, we are all going through uh, a, a pandemic. Uh, how, how have uh, you dealt with the, this crisis? Uh, if, you, if you can maybe summarize, um, you know, for the last 12 months or nine months? The way I'd like to think about this is uh, 
you know, we were kind of in phases, right? The first few months, I think we were in crisis mode. You know, there was no rule book or playbook for this. You know, we were bringing our employees and in a matter of three days, we brought almost 320 to 330,000 IBMers from an office to be fully remote. And so, you know, that was a huge learning curve. We had to create onboarding experiences that typically would have been done all face-to-face. We had to do it virtually. So those are some of the things that we dealt with in the beginning. Absentee rates. What does COVID mean? What do you tell people about it? You know, we were in that kind of mode. Then we got into what I would say was, you know, planning for recovery. And I think that's the period we've been in now for maybe the the last six months. You often hear people talk about the return to the workplace. So we're in this mode of planning for recovery. But as we've seen different waves roll around the, the global landscape here, I think we're all realizing that might take a little longer than any of us had hoped. But during this period, it's really about making sure that you're focused on employee well-being. We've been at this a lot longer. We can all be heroes for short periods of time, but we've been at this for a lot longer than we expected. So there's a big focus right now on uh, employee well-being, but also on reinforcing the culture. We now have a group of IBMers that we have onboarded in the last year, 30,000 in the last year who's never known what it's like to work in an IBM office. So there's a lot that we're doing around culture to reinforce it so that it does not get diluted as we've been in this environment for this long. How do you you reinforce it virtually? I mean, uh, what are you doing? Yeah, look, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, we're we're doing a lot of things through trial and error and and pilots, right? We're doing a lot of cohort conversations. We're doing a lot of training on kind of values and culture. It's really around bringing people together, even though they're doing it virtually, reinforcing some of the things that you may have picked up over coffee in the past (laughs) or running over to somebody's desk. It is a little bit of the virtual first ways of working, but we're now being very strategic in there, making sure that pieces of our culture and behavior are very explicitly covered where implicitly they would have been covered before. So that's kind of you know what we're in this phase now. The real phase that I'm excited about is kind of the next phase. As we return to the workplace, and again, whatever that means for companies in a post-pandemic world, hybrid or never in the office at all or completely in the office, I do think there is this opportunity for reinvention that we've been talking about, Dr. Singh. I think that is where companies need to focus, whether it's the hours that people work, whether it's where they work, the tools that they use, who they hire. That's the piece. This isn't about just going back to kind of pre-pandemic. It's about taking the best of what we loved before the pandemic and what we've learned during the pandemic and bringing both of those together. One thing that I've seen companies struggle with in this new virtual context is uh, how to seek accountability, uh, right? How do you 
ensure people are doing the, the work. So, uh, and I'm sure your managers are grappling with similar issues. So uh, any, any words of advice for uh, folks that are thinking about this? This is actually one of the things that I think is the benefit of the pandemic. For years prior to the pandemic, HR professionals, academics around the world were talking about measure people on outcomes, not activities. We, we kept kind of trying to, to get this concept out there. Not only did we think it made the workforce more equitable, but we also thought that it drove better results. But when you're in the office every day and your manager's right there and your team is right there, it's easy to manage at the activity level. One of the great things that I think has happened during the pandemic is it's virtually impossible. Home and work have completely, your managers can't see you. So I do think it's caused leaders, managers, teams to really focus on this outcome point. And that's the piece that I think is something that we want to carry forward, mm-hmm. even after we, you know, quote unquote, return to normal. Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense to focus on the outcomes. So um, IBM's HR organization has the benefit of uh, having a massive technology infrastructure behind it. Uh, so how, how are you leveraging AI uh, to, to reap benefits for your uh, organization more broadly? Yeah, this is one of this is a journey that we have been on for for several years now. And I also think it's an opportunity where the virtual work environment that we're in has given HR teams an ability to maybe accelerate their use of AI tools and technology. So, you know, we've embedded AI analytics and technology into every point of the employee life cycle from you know onboarding to development to how we pay and even to how we we offboard just a couple examples that I'll give that actually have benefited us during the pandemic but we'll also continue to see the benefits as we move forward we are using ai to virtually match candidates to our job openings So a candidate may see a job opening, they're interested in IBM, they apply, but what we're finding is they may not be the right match for that job, but through AI, we can identify four or five other jobs they may not have had the opportunity to see, but we know they're a match for. And so it's allowing us this better candidate experience and allowing us to get talent quicker. We're also using AI and chatbots and robots to kind of answer some of our employee questions. So where we typically would have had call centers or people on site to answer HR type questions. We're now finding that last year, our chatbots handled 2 million conversations with employees and managers, getting them real-time information. They weren't waiting on hold on the line. They weren't waiting for somebody to become available at their desk but getting them real-time answers to their HR questions fast when they needed it. And another example is around pay and retention. 
we are using predictive analytics and AI to indicate early warning signs of when individuals may be a flight risk. And as a result, we've had a 50% retention increase on our key technical skills because of early actions that are taken. A lot of the innovation that's happening with AI is on the on the candidate experience side. Are you doing anything on the the recruiting side as well, where the hiring managers have access to AI and uh, are able to leverage that technology? Yeah, it, this is a this is a great question, and this is also maybe very much linked to kind of DE and I because it's helping us take bias out of the uh, the whole process. And again, we use this throughout the life cycle. But absolutely, managers are now seeing kind of more automated matches, matches they would not have seen on their own. Mm -hmm. We are also using it for internal matches. So these are IBMers where we see their profile, they have not applied to a job, but where we can surface that they may be a match for another job at IBM. And last year we, we placed over 1500 IBMers using this automated matching process internally. Now, a lot of my fellow CHROs say, Nickel, are you crazy? How does that work? Doesn't this create this internal competition? And the way we describe it to managers are, if the AI is identifying somebody as a great skill match and also at risk to leave, wouldn't you rather have them lose to another manager in the company than somewhere externally? And so this is another way that we're helping managers find even better internal matches, not just external. That's wonderful. And another area in which uh, this could be useful is uh, for contingent hiring. And so, so I have a twofold question. One is, you know, how do you think about integrating contingent talent into the larger workforce so that, you know, there isn't this big wall of separation between a contractor and employee? And the second is that, you know, how do you, how do you facilitate that using technology uh, you know, this kind of uh, matchmaking? Yeah, I think there's two ways I, I will answer this. In many of our countries around the world, that separation, unfortunately, is something that is required by law. And so I know as HR professionals and candidly managers of teams where you've got both types of workers, you know, you're kind of regular full-time as well as your contingent. This is something that is becoming increasingly challenging. And so while many rules and regulations exist around, you know, pay and even candidly uh, um, how you manage that talent, while it needs to be separate, I think you're bringing up the second point where companies don't have to worry anymore, and that is this virtual way of working. This virtual way of working can allow all different types of employees. It doesn't matter now, part-time, full-time, are you a contingent worker or not? You can kind of bring to bear a very wide variety of employees to a problem, to a client, and it doesn't matter where in the world they are or 
what kind of paycheck or they have or, or badge that they hold. It's allowing you to kind of more seamlessly in this virtual environment, bring the right skills together. But Dr. Singh, the point you bring up about kind of more seamlessly managing talent, not having that wall, I do continue to see this being a challenge for HR teams um, where the policies and the laws around this haven't exactly caught up with how companies need to operate. Let's uh, talk about uh, upskilling and reskilling. Uh, as we know, a, a very large percent of our population is going to need to be retrained. So how, how are you tackling that internally? How, how are you uh, helping IBMers uh, reskill themselves or upskill themselves in the context of AI automation uh, that, that's in front of us? Yes, so I'll answer it again, thinking about this on two levels. In technology in particular, the half-life of skills is decreasing. No longer can you get a certification or a degree or a set of skills, and that will last you an entire career. The technology is just moving too fast. And so one of the things that all companies need to do, whether you're in technology or not, is that you need to build as a piece of your culture this concept of continuous learning. It needs to be how your company operates. If you think about it, a lot of the work around growth mindset is fundamentally on that level. That's the way we evolve and work and continue to stay contemporary as, as humans. But it's even more important for companies to make sure that they set that expectation in their culture so that employees know what's expected of them. But then it's also incumbent upon you as an employer to make sure that you're giving them opportunities to do that. And we've done that a couple different ways. So if you think about, well, how do you plumb continuous learning? How do you make it real in an organization? One of the things that we did was we created an online digital platform. I like to think of it as Netflix for learning. <laughs> it's called Your Learning. It is AI enabled. It will surface recommendations to you based on your job profile, but it will also show you curated learning roadmaps. So if I said I wanted to be a Java programmer, it would actually curate the entire path and might say to me, Nickel, it will take you 250 hours to have that happen. For you, if you said I wanted to be a Java programmer, it might curate a different set of learning. And it might say, Dr. Singh, it will take you three hours. But that type of personalization and customization is exactly what organizations need so that employees can feel empowered and that you're not wasting time and energy and resources so that you're sitting for, through 250 hours when you don't need 247 of it. And I think that that is one of the things that we've done that has really enabled this reskilling and upskilling. Um, the second thing that we've done is we have been very transparent with our employees about skills and where they're headed. So for all the different skills that employees have, we're using analytic models to show kind of future demand. So you would know if you were going to sitting in a job that in three years, we 
we predicted to have kind of increased demand and will still be, or I might be sitting in a job that in three years is declining. It then gives me agency and empowerment on my own and with my manager to work ahead of time before it's too late to kind of manage and grow and build to a different set of skills. That's fantastic. And and how many uh, employees on average uh, you see leveraging this learning platform? It's a great question. So all 350,000 IBMers use it. A couple stats that, that I'll share with you is that several years ago to help kind of reinforce this concept of continuous learning and try to get it real in the organization, we set out a goal that said every IBMer, regardless of their job role, must do at least 40 hours of education and training on their own. And we hit that. This past year during the pandemic, the average learning hours for IBMers was over 90 hours, 90 hours. And we had some IBMers that were upwards of 200. And so this is where, again, IBMers have really embraced this thought of continuously building their skills to make sure that they can not only do their current job, but they're ready for the next one. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. So Nickel, um, any any parting words for our audience? Look, just it's been wonderful to be here with you, Dr. Singh. I am a fan of the, the podcast. And the, so for all of you that are listening, we've covered a ton of ground here on a wide variety of, of topics. And there is no one perfect answer for every company or or everybody, every organization. But I do believe we are at a unique moment, as challenging and as difficult as this last 12 to 14 months have been. And I do know that there are some difficult months ahead of us, but it is a unique moment for HR to redesign and rethink just about everything. And this isn't a moment to pause. If anything, we have an opportunity now more than ever to accelerate and to be at the forefront of the business, not just for our function, but for the employees and the talent we're going to bring into the organization. So seize the moment, don't hesitate, and just get started. Really well said, thank you, Nicole. It's been a real pleasure.